are here at 11FS headquarters in London WeWork for episode 35 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Circle acquires Poloniex, nearly half of last year's ICOs have already failed, and the Venezuelan president asked banks to start mining crypto. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. As always, of course, I'm joined by Colin G. Platt, the GSAS himself. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. I do love the, your note in the show notes about mocking me. you got to mock Colin's lack of facial hair. You've gone from like part Yeti to like almost clean shaven. Now the only uh, rhododendron looking thing is the bush outside your window, right? I think it is, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually quite disappointed that you no longer resemble one of uh, some sort of bush. It was it was really quite a good Yeti look for you. I th- thought you'd gone full crypto. It was, it was strong. I, I was really trying to go for the neckbeard look. Yeah, well, that neckbeard has been cut back. Um, Colin, you're going to be at a conference in the near future. I am. I will be at the Deconomy Conference in Seoul, uh, which is not next to Field, believe it or not, or I don't know, I haven't been there quite yet. But I assume they don't have many downtown uh, on April 3rd and 4th. Uh, if you're there, come say hi. If you're anywhere in the region, come out and join the conference. Absolutely. Sounds fun. Colin be traveling around the world once again. Um, and you're a proper legal person in France now, I believe. I, I believe I am uh, a legal person and I'm properly in France. Yes. I, I finally got got all the paperwork that says I'm allowed to be here, though. Getting all that paperwork sorted. Um, so uh, let's get uh, started with some news. The first story this week comes from Fortune. Um, there's a big cryptocurrency acquisition that could create a Wall Street-style financial giant. So this is about Circle acquiring Poloniex. Colin, um, talk us through this one and maybe why Circle see this as valuable as well. Who's Poloniex? Yeah, let's let's talk about all that. Who is everybody involved? Um, so Circle is a company uh, that has been doing several different things. Um, I believe they were actually involved with Simon back in his day, uh, in his banking day. Um, they they produce a consumer-facing app that allows you to, to trade between different currencies, dollars, euros, all of those types of things. At one point, Bitcoin as well. Um, they pulled back the, the Bitcoin part at some point last year and said, well, we're not getting a lot of traction with clients on that. There's another really interesting thing they do, which is OTC trading uh, or brokerage. So this is if I have a lot of Bitcoin um, and I want to sell them or somebody wants to buy a lot of Bitcoin, rather than going out to uh, an exchange like Coinbase or Kraken or Bitfinex or any of the, the many of other options out there, you can call somebody up on the phone. They do all the rest of the work for you. Of course, that doesn't come for free. They stated that they trade about $2 billion worth of cryptocurrency per month, uh, which is an enormous number in this market. Uh, I think they are, if not the largest uh, top two or top three Bitcoin traders that exist. Really interesting company. They acquired a Bitcoin exchange, a proper exchange of Bitcoins or altcoins based out of the US called Poloniex, which at one point I believe was the largest altcoin or non-Bitcoin exchange. Uh, it's gone down, I think it's something like number 14 now uh, of all cryptocurrency exchanges. Altcoin only exchanges is probably slightly higher. But the really interesting parts that came in with this is uh, somebody leaked a slide from Circle, said all kinds of interesting things. Uh, it was rumored that uh, they bought this for about $400 million. And in this whole thing, there was uh, a notion that 
any past wrongs that Poloniex may have done uh, will be cleaned out during this acquisition. So anything around KYC AML might be uh, zeroed out, and they've done a lot of work with the SEC to try to get there and make sure all their, their T's are crossed and I's are dotted. No, it's interesting because you have, I think, with Circle, almost two businesses, as you pointed out, that consumer front end that's kind of almost um, become a, a consumer app that people almost don't associate with crypto anymore, and it's just a way to send your friends money. But on the back end, they had a lot of Bitcoin, and they um, found themselves creating this OTC desk to make sense of it and just as part of everyday business became quite effective at it found there's a lot of demand in the market as the price has gone up and then lo and behold uh, they could probably build that out if they had a service um, but they were missing that um, exchange capability that front-end capability that, that others might have so it seems fairly logical and Circle have always been kind of uh, almost the poster child for how to get compliance right. Yeah I mean the Circle is is doing everything right I mean if there's there's two companies out there who have spent a lot of money to make sure they're doing it right within the cryptocurrency uh, aspect are the likes of Circle and Coinbase. I mean, there are many others, but these are guys are the ones that stick out as we're doing everything we can to make sure we fit within the law. Uh, there were lots of speculations around Poloniex not necessarily being there. Uh, I think this is uh, good for two reasons. First is it shows that they are actually doing things correctly, which is um, a I think a good read across for everybody else out there in the market that maybe it's not as dodgy as we'd like to think on the exchange side. Maybe it still is. I don't know. Hard to, hard to tell. But I think this is a step in the right direction. And also this reinforces everything that, that Circle has done to build uh, and means that there's very likely to be reinforcement inside of Poloniex, which uh, could be positive for them going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of um, compliance, the next story comes from Coindesk, and this one says New York lawmakers are apparently open to revisiting the bit license. So should we just explain what the bit license is, Colin? Yeah, so bit license was a, was a regulation that was passed in 2015 in the state of New York and applied to Everybody that was a resident in the state of New York or any company based in the state of New York or people even just passing through the state of New York. And I think it also meant that anybody who yeah, was selling to New York-based residents, so you you may not be based there yourselves, but even if that you have any customers in New York, you were subject to the bit license. Yeah, and I think there were some, some odd edge cases as well of... Um, I could have been selling a Bitcoin to you, but because it went through a server in New York, we might be captured by the bit license. There's there's weird things in there. But New York uh, State, obviously very big state in the United States, um, where the city of New York is, quite obviously. Big center for everything Bitcoin. They put this in in 2015 under Ben Losky, who was the, the head of the New York uh, Department for Financial Services at the time, um, who has since become, a, I believe, a non-exec director of the Ripple, uh, Ripple Labs, which of course is uh, behind a lot of the announcements we're seeing on different interbank movements. And of course, that's linked with XRP, which I think we have an interview later this show that we'll get into and, and explain exactly how that works. So somebody who was been in this uh, got a lot of criticism from the, the Bitcoin community for putting this in without fully understanding what was going on. And then as soon as he left, uh, I believe he went to set up his own consultancy to help companies get a bit license in the state of New York. So obviously was not looked upon very favorably. A lot of companies have said uh, this is pushing innovation out of New York. This is pushing companies and people out of the state of New York. And um, there was a, a meeting that did not include the New York Department of uh, Financial Services, uh, included lots of entrepreneurs, some state senators to say, 
what do we think about this thing? And although they didn't come concretely and say we're going to change things, uh, they did say that in principle we're open to it. So I think this is a positive sign. Um, and what I really liked kind of at the bottom of the story was Coin Center, who's a, a big lobbying group in, in Washington, D.C., uh, as well as many of the, the states has said, you know, we're actually starting to see traction from people on the ground who are involved in cryptocurrencies in the United States go out and influence politicians. So if you're in these things, whether you're in the United States or elsewhere, it doesn't hurt to talk to your politicians and tell them what you think. It may not always go anywhere, but it's good to be talking. It's good to talk. Um, as the late Bob Hoskins would have said, that's one for the British listeners. Uh, all right, so um, there's uh, there's this really interesting uh, dynamic between regulating into legitimacy. Uh, and in a weird way, even though the bit license is considered somewhat draconian and a lot of the organizations that have a bit license are also regulated five other ways in um, the USA and New York and uh and a whole bunch of other ways. In order to operate within crypto in en- with any legitimacy, you have to have all of the license you would have to operate in any other asset class that looked like it, plus the bit license, plus a couple of other things. So you end up super, super regulated. And there's a need to just kind of maybe step back, maybe not over-regulate. And as um, Christian Carlo from the CFTC says, first, do no harm. And I think we find ourselves in this interesting position in which uh, some things obviously fit with inside existing regulation. Some things kind of do and kind of don't, and some things definitely don't. And actually, that becomes much more of a policy question than a regulation question, because it's messy. The question isn't, does it fit or does it? Because sometimes it really, really does, and sometimes it doesn't. The question becomes a bit more, all right, what should we do about it, and what do we want the future to look like? And I think it's interesting to see that um, the it was State Senator David Carlucci said to Coindesk uh, they wanted to do at least do a hearing to get some views before they propose any leg- legislation. Uh, we want to put it out there, circulate it, and figure out how we can make this license in New York something that works for the residents of the New York State and the state economy. Uh, it's interesting to me that, to me, this is a sign of intent that the parts of the industry, at least, are really, really maturing. We're getting this bifurcation from you know professional trading desks and operations and kind of the, uh, the original view of what Bitcoin was supposed to be, which is, ah, it's anti-establishment, it's all anonymous. There are two different worlds uh, kind of evolving here, Colin. Absolutely. And I I think the last thing I'd say on this is I I remember at the time, I think there was a general expectation when this thing came into force that uh, a lot of other states and and federal regulators would kind of come in line and see this as the right way to do it. That doesn't at all seem to be what happened. Uh, Every other state seemed to have gone Um, most notably the state of California, and been very open to see what's going to happen and wait. And as you you put it, CFTC and SEC are very open as well. To me, it's quite natural that uh, if 52 other state and federal regulators are turning and saying, we're going to go the other direction, um, that New York is kind of left out by themselves in the cold. Indeed, as um, we're, we're not covering it today, but uh, I did see that Wyoming um, are looking at maybe passing something that, that would be considered um, quite welcoming to, to that within their state. So, um, But moving on from lawmakers to lawbreakers, um, story in Coindesk, the supposed Satoshi Craig White, uh, Craig Wright even, is being sued for 10 billion US dollars. That's a big lawsuit, Colin. Uh, yeah, you can't see this, listeners, but Colin did the Dr. Evil, like... Uh, pose right there that was pretty good dr evil 10 billion uh yeah so um craig wright uh, also known as fake toshi um was uh 
in 2014, uh, 2015, putting together emails to um, the family of the late uh, Dave Kleinman, who was known to be involved in Bitcoin uh, very early, also rumored to be um, possibly Satoshi or very closely linked with Satoshi, um, died, lost all these things. He, uh, Craig Wright, was alleged to go through and um, it try to get information out of the family to get a hold of these things. The families turned around and said, right, okay, um, for whatever reason, we don't have access to these things. We think Craig Wright does. Um, as a result, he owes us $10 billion um, because that's the current price of, I guess, what everything was valued at. Uh, this will be really interesting because there will be uh, from what we've been hearing, court documents that put out to let us know, possibly, uh, a bit more information about who Satoshi is or isn't uh, in all of these findings. It's it's going to be a very interesting one to watch, not from a technology story at all, um, though I think some people have um, put out some analyses that I've seen uh, suggesting that all of this money that uh, Craig Wright was claiming was um, Satoshi's money, thus his money, uh, was not at all linked to that, was actually linked to MT Gox, the, the fabled exchange that collapsed in 2014. So I, I think it'll be very interesting from a human story point of view, then we'll definitely follow up with this when there is more info. I think for whatever reason, it seems like the uh, creation myth around Bitcoin and uh, Satoshi seems to be the thing that captures the public attention. Stories uh, are what get people interested. And whether we like it or not, um, that, that does grab attention. But we find ourselves in which in a world in which Bitcoin exists and continues to exist without these characters. Um, but now the old uh, consequences of, of some of what happened many, many years ago um, are being looked at. And a and friend of the show, Steve Pally, sort of said that some of the lawyers involved in this are really heavy-hitting litigators. This this could get really, really interesting. And we could potentially see people trying to seize Bitcoins from, from various wallets and various accounts. And uh, that's going to be an interesting precedent to see And because uh, you know, they're not necessarily held at an exchange. Are people going to be asked or um, kind of pushed to hand over private keys? And does that make a mockery of the whole idea of be your own bank? Yeah, I think those questions are important. Um, I remember Isabella Kaminska a while ago put out a, an article talking about uh, Bitcoin's lean problem, the, the notion that because Bitcoin settlement isn't final, there's no finality in it in, in legal terms, there may be a question that if, if a court is able to go in and start seizing Bitcoin, that might have a, a ripple on effect to other people who weren't affected at all with this because maybe the money's moved through MT Gox or something else. If a court can uh, take that away, what happens to people downstream who may not have been involved at all at that time? Very interesting indeed. Let's see what happens with this one, Colin. Uh, switching gears a little bit, um, moving into the DLT or the enterprise space, a story from Coindesk saying that uh, R3, the collective of over 160 organizations, have piloted a blockchain trade finance platform with global banks. So I think the banks involved here were... Um, what was it? It was ING, Commerce Bank, and BNP, uh, your old home. And they're calling this the Marco Polo uh, trade finance uh, kind of uh, pilot. And uh, part of the proof of concepts enabled them to see that Solution could deliver three separate areas of trade financing. Um, it would be faster and smoother, um, and it would be uh, reducing cost, and it would uh, allow you to uh, simplify, track, and digitize trade. So that's like three things that sounds like five things, um, but it's interesting that people always like to give three things. Um, I 
to me, like this moving into pilot is nice. We've seen lots of pilots, um, but actually uh, Tradex uh, we've had on a previous episode of Blockchain Insider, and as everybody knows, of course, uh, our three are responses. So we wish them well. Um, but Colin, you've always been kind of um, not so convinced by the trade finance use case. What do you think of this one? Yeah, I think um, I mean a lot of a lot of my my hesitation on trade finance, and I, uh, it'd be interesting to to understand when this stuff comes out. Has been uh, you know the the idea of putting this on a distributed ledger isn't a horrible idea. I mean, it fixes some of the things, but um, that's like 1% of the problem. I mean, uh, where it comes down to it, most things in trade finance break because you need um, humans to sign either slips of paper or digitized documents or whatever they are. Uh, and if you don't get humans to do their job, it doesn't really matter how good your blockchain is if you're moving physical goods, because at some point, if a container gets on a ship and somebody hasn't signed it into your, your blockchain or your DLT, the container's still on a ship. And if it's a thousand kilometers away by the time you figure it out, it doesn't do a whole lot of good. Um, so I think it's a really interesting, promising sign that they're starting to put these things uh, into the next phases. And what I really liked about this announcement was talking about uh, interoperability with other uh, trade finance networks. So I think those are all positive signs to say, we're building the technology infrastructure and that's really the stage that we're at right now. I mean, building apps and figuring out what works and what doesn't, I think, is the the push for the next couple of years here. Um, but building out uh, how everything works, uh, we can only really get there by trial and error. So I'm I'm hoping that I'm wrong and they figured out all these things, and I look forward to seeing more details on it. Yeah, so I think the approach here is like we're dealing with major ports like Hong Kong and Singapore. We're dealing with major companies like the big banks, but also the major insurance companies and potentially um, major shipping companies and uh, major buyers, sellers, and and some of the uh, some of the key ecosystem partners. So if you start with large organisations, you only need to move like a small handful of them onto this platform, and you can start making a, a real difference to their operating costs. When I worked uh, in a bank, I always used to call it looking for the Goldilocks problem, which uh, may not translate well around the world but if you're familiar with the story of the three bears um there's kind of uh, too hot too cold and just right um and finding that just right size of problem to solve uh, in enterprise is really key to executing and getting things delivered uh, so that's, that's going to be an interesting one to watch um and yeah we, we continue to wish them well um speaking of our three today's episode of blockchain insider is brought to you by corda and a well-shaven colin Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly and in strict privacy using smart contracts, not rhododendrons. Um, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. And it's the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 and over 160 of the world's largest tech partners. It's ready to build on today and the financial community is already deploying Corda to manage their agreements, as we just talked about doing pilots and stuff. You can transform your business on the platform selected by some of the world's largest financial institutions. Go to Corda.net to learn more. And don't forget, CordaCon is happening in Tokyo on March the 7th. Don't miss out. You can email events at r3.com to learn more. Alrighty, um, the next story, Colin, I think is an important one. As two men talking on a blockchain show with an interview with a man, um, I think we should be doing better on, on this front. Um, and I always think we can be doing better. Um, but the cryptocurrency community and crypto bros is, is generally uh, kind of a... a Something that uh, something that's disappointing. Um, so the story in the New York Times and Wired uh, about uh, women in cryptocurrencies push back against blockchain bros. Um, do you want to lead us through some of the key points on this one? 
Yeah, and I think I think you you made some important points. So uh, we'll try to we'll try to walk around this one carefully because I think um, you and I have discussed, and as you said, I mean, it's definitely we want to see a more inclusive environment for this in all ways, shape, and form. Be it um, people of of different sexes, different races, different nationalities, everybody should be welcome to to bring good ideas, um, no matter who they are. So there there was two interesting stories, and it was interesting they came out in the same time. As you said, New York Times and Wired have come out talking about specifically women in, in cryptocurrencies. The one from New York Times quotes um, Ariana Simpson, who was an early investor, talking about um, how a lot of the people that got involved uh, were male novices. They weren't ex- uh, PhDs and experts. And she noted that uh, from her observation, women are, are more likely to question uh, if they're qualified before they take the leap of faith. Um, but she's pointing out that a lot of people involved are, are really just clowns. So, um, you know, jump jump up and get involved. There was some pushback from some of the people quoted in this article that said maybe the um, author was trying to push an agenda, and including one developer who's uh, involved with the Zcash Foundation, who is a self-taught uh, developer. And, and we always love to see um, people that are learning, getting involved, and getting involved in, in big projects. I think that the takeaway from this one is uh, there's definitely an issue, uh, especially with some of the community who are are quite hostile. Um, and, and some people might find that difficult to deal with, uh, which is completely understandable. And I think that the other thing is there's some people out there who um, unfortunately have made choices in the way that uh, events and other things were run that were just downright um, not open to to women, um, including holding things in strip clubs, which have been quoted, I think, at both articles here. Um, so let, let's all try to do a bit better, um, us included. We need to to make sure that we're doing better on this to be more inclusive and get everybody in. Uh, and we welcome everybody's suggestions. So do reach out and let us know how we can be doing better. Absolutely. Um, I echo that sentiment 100%. Um, I, I, I look at myself and say I could be doing better and, and I hope we can do better. Um, let's move to the next story, Colin. Um, this one, um, we've got a bit of a segment on uh, ICOs coming up, but the first one is Germany's financial regulator, BaFin, issues a letter on ICOs. And uh, before we get to your thoughts, uh, you spoke to Frank Muller about the subject. Absolutely. Have a listen. I'm here with Frank Mueller, partner at Munich law firm Aberhold, and also contributor to paytechlaw.com, a blog that talks about everything that's payments, technology, and law. Thanks for coming on today, Frank. Thanks for having me, Colin. So I wanted to catch up with you. you. You wrote an article about an information letter from Boffin, the German regulator on everything financial, uh, talking specifically about ICOs. Can you talk to us a bit about this uh, post you put out? Yeah, sure. So... Boffin uh, uh, launched an information letter last week, I think it was on uh, Wednesday, uh, giving some guidance on uh, ICOs and regulation in Germany. And uh, surprise, surprise, it's not much different to uh, the other regulators, especially FINMA, uh, which published their uh, guideline one week before that. And um, the main difference between FINMA and Boffin is that you can actually pretty quickly understand what FINMA says uh, it's very positive, very welcoming. It's in English. It's welcome to Switzerland. Everything's nice here. Come on, launch your ICO. Whereas the BaFin information letter, at least for someone that hasn't really dealt with that topic, it's really hard to understand, even as uh, uh, even if German is your mother language. And uh, I think it's it's also well in the way it is it is drafted it is it's really hard to really grasp which which of the ico token uh, could be could be subject to regulation so um to cut a long story short 
Um, Finma has a very, very good marketing material, which they published and call it guidelines on ICO. Um, Bafin has pretty much the same approach uh, um, um, in terms of con content, uh, but not so good in marketing and PR. So just to remind our listeners, um, FINMA, the regulator in Switzerland, uh, where most of the ICOs globally are, are based out of at least in one way, shape or form, took the, this view that there's something called utility coins, which may or may not be securities and asset tokens, which are definitely are securities, and also some payment tokens, which we won't get into. And that was widely received as a, a very positive step. Um, there wasn't as much coverage about specifically this Boffin letter. And as you said, it wasn't um, as, as positively received, even though it largely says uh, the same thing, which is everything's decided at the end of the day on a case-by-case -case basis. If I'm, a, if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm looking at potentially going to Germany to set up, or I'm based in Germany and I want to set up an ICO, would you read this as something um, dramatically different from what we've heard from either the likes of uh, FINMA or in the US from the SEC and the CFTC? No, uh, not at all. But the entrepreneur must be very, very into this topic because, like I said, to enter the FINMA letter, it's pretty easy because they say, listen, it's only three types of token and uh, only one type of token makes you subject to regulation. Whereas BaFin uh, refers to, I think, 10 or 12 supervisory laws and um, they do not categorize token. Um, but let me tell you maybe something why I assume BaFin didn't categorize the token. If you want to give a, a legally binding guidance, um, I think what it's necessary to do is um, to categorize uh, tokens from a technical functional perspective. Um, you need to develop a legally binding definition for each of the token. And I think on that basis, you need to specify regulatory requirements to be applied for each of the token, right? So having said this, I think we have just started the work on some of these points. And I think the result out of, out of this is the three categories, which uh, FINMA refers to. But I don't think that we are in a position at the moment where we can actually make a final legally binding categorization of the token, of the tokens available at the market. Even FINMA says, hey guys, listen, we have three tokens. Um, I think, what is it, what they call it? I think the asset, asset token or security token is the same thing. They say, well, only this one is subject to regulation. But we also have hybrid token, I think they call it. And if it's a hybrid token, many, many more laws apply. So I think that's why the BaFin, which is really, how you say, bureaucratic in its approach to give guideline, guidance, they try to make sure that everything's correct, typically German. So what they do is they say, as we do not have a definition of what a token is, because there are so many tokens, uh, we need to have an approach from the other side. We cannot take the token as the basis, but we tell you, listen, if you launch an ICO in Germany, you have to think about, and then they name all the laws, and then they stress that the most important term is a, a security. So with so also with the SEC, the MIS, uh, and, and so forth. So they say, you need to see if it is a security, then you really must be careful and uh, maybe have some uh, outside counsel on whether or not your token is subject to regulation. So again, I think it's not that the communication, it's not the best thing BaFin did here. But if you take a closer look at it, and we have uh, wrote a, a small piece on that on that information letter on our blog, you can pretty much see that BaFin has a similar approach as FINMA, as the SEC, and the other regulators. So I think nothing new. So a 
step forward on guidance and give it some sort of regulation for the ICO uh, industry. Um, I think we're not there where we need to be, um, but I think it's a good step in the right direction. Good step indeed. I guess kind of the bottom line here is, um, as you said, there's more clarity. There's still a lot of unanswered questions as these things are very new. Um, but bottom line, the, the job for lawyers in Germany, Switzerland and elsewhere is, is not quite going away just yet um, because of blockchain. And actually, um, it, it's definitely good to always, if you're setting these things up, uh, spend a little money to get good quality legal advice. Yeah, exactly. That's the good part about it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is if you're in that business, which you happen to be. Uh, Frank, thanks for coming on. Can you tell people a bit more about uh, where they can find out more about you, the work you do, and, and maybe if they're interested in contracting your services? Yeah, sure. Um, if you want to find out more what we do, um, have a look at our blog. It's www.paytechlaw.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at Frank R.H. Mueller or on LinkedIn. Thank you very much. All right, so thank you very much to those comments from Frank. Interesting the uh, parallels he draws with FINMA uh, because actually the FINMA uh, kind of thing that came out of Switzerland was seen as really kind of open-minded and permissive almost, but they're very thoughtful uh, in terms of uh, how it had thought about the risks and how it thought about the terminology. Um, BARFIN are generally viewed as a lot scarier, but actually seem to be saying a lot of the same things. Absolutely. So, and I think, um, you know, as we said, as we said in that cutaway, um, if you are thinking about doing this in any jurisdiction, Switzerland included, definitely make sure you seek out competent advice. Completely. All right, next story from uh, news.bitcoin.com. In a surprise to nobody, 46% of last year's ICOs have failed already. Colin, have at it. Uh, you know, this is about 45% higher than, uh, you know, less uh, failures than I thought there would be. Um, I mean, <laughs> what generally in early stage startups, you talk about 90% plus failure rates, right? This this article goes out and it uses data, which is great to see people using data in, in a highly technical, highly data-led field. Um, and they, they track some ICOs. Um, I think they had uh, 900, which they, they took a look at from last year. 42 failed because uh, at the funding stage, meaning they didn't raise the money they wanted to raise. Uh, 276 have since failed, um, which means they took the money, they couldn't really get anything, or they disappeared kind of altogether, maybe, maybe through failure, maybe through um, other reasons. And I think that's why <laughs> you got to wonder about why the regulators think, well, hang on, is something dodgy going on here? Because not only is a lot failing, but people took the money and it's not really clear where that money's gone. Whereas actually with startups you and, and sort of venture rounds, there's a fairly well-known process of how that money's managed and what the rules are around it. So you gotta, you got to say some of the regulators have a point here on this one. I also like this point. Um, an additional 113 uh, token sales can be classified as semi-failed, either because their team stop communicating on social media or because their community is so small it means the project has no chance of success this means that 59 percent of last year's crowd sales are either confirmed failures or failures in the making which it just sounds like some sort of award we should give out for failures in the making i, I think an award ceremony for this stuff could be fun <laughs> you know i think it would be highly controversial if nothing else <laughs> Speaking um, of highly controversial, um, can I move us to the next story, Colin? Because there's one from Fortune. Uh, the Venezuelan president asks 
banks to mine the national cryptocurrency. Unions are aghast. I love that point. The word aghast. Thank you, Laura. Producer Laura is smiling at me right now. That's fantastic. Um, walk us through this one, Colin. There's so much fun to be had here. All right. In a surprise to no one, um, Nicolas Maduro, the, the dictator or whatever he's called of, of Venezuela, who uh, issued a decree that they will set up a cryptocurrency because, you know, decentralized technology that's centrally controlled is the best way to go, as, as of course we all know. Um, he's been shot down by some of the, the people in the government, as well as the U.S. Treasury, um, talking about how this may actually be an invention of the government to launder drug money. So, you know, go figure. I thought they were making money out of out of oil, um, but uh, apparently they're also laundering drug money, and it's great that we have cryptocurrencies that are state-controlled to do such things. Um, so, as we, as we talked about in the show uh, a couple of times already, this was a, a really rather large one that happened really, really fast. They claimed to raise nearly three quarters of a billion dollars um, in a combination of, I guess, dollars and Chinese yuan and a few other things. Um, and they wanted to make it the first um, state-backed cryptocurrency. A lot of people were talking about how this was something to avoid, and I think a lot of people are feeling pretty happy that they wanted to avoid it. Um, he's also put some things in there saying that, you know, state-run companies like um, oil mining um, and distilleries and all these types of things, or not distilleries, <laughs> but distillers, um, should um, sell part of their products uh, in, in Petro, this new cryptocurrency. Nobody's really quite sure why, but, um, you know, maybe he's got, a, he's got a good slice of the ICO that he held on to, and he's looking for a good retail pump and dump. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's one of those things where you can totally see why uh, the global kind of community of, of the G20 would say, hmm, this looks like money laundering might be going on in this stuff. And if the state sponsored money laundering, maybe we need to try and curtail that in some way. Uh, and generally, uh, what can the, uh, we were talking at the outset of the program about the more legitimate actors in the crypto community who have taken this emerging asset class and made it something that is, you know, kind of legitimate, tradable um, within regulatory frameworks or, or outside of them, but within sense codes of conduct what can they do and what can the industry do to try and uh, try and make this better it's an interesting set of questions to think about how do you go about solving those problems um so do reach out uh if you have any thoughts about how you would go about doing that all right stories we didn't have time to cover one from business insider um elliot management a 34 billion dollar u.s hedge funds described cryptocurrencies as one of the most brilliant scams in history and a brutal takedown said so uh fomo or fear miss fear of missing out has solidly trumped um what the hell is this which i i quite like that's a, that's a great sound w-t-h-i-t i guess yeah what's it um yeah it? <laughs> um according to the hedge fund cryptocurrencies are the marketing power of inventors financiers and others who love the idea of buying a black box which is obviously empty um nice little take down there i don't know that that's fair um but it's it's interesting to see how divisive the subject continues to be um, speaking of divisive, the Tezos board got reorganized. It looks like they might be um, trying to steer their way out of the fog slowly but surely. Um, I don't know how that happened, and I don't know, uh, but we, we do wish them well, and we hope that that can come to a good conclusion. And a uh, story on The Verge. 50 Cent admits in bankruptcy document that he never actually owned any Bitcoin. Um, I wonder if the IRS gave him a call, Colin. Did you see that meme of, you know, like... He's in court saying, yeah, I didn't own any Bitcoin. And then he goes on and Googles, buy Monero. And he's walking out with a Monero t-shirt on. 
<laughs> that's a great cartoon shout out to whoever did that um so he's trying to he's trying to get monero a die trying that's for sure um all right so um there's a new segment we're trialing tweet of the week um such so much valuable um blockchain info happens on crypto twitter um and not in traditional news stories we thought you'd bring you the tweet of the week the um, best one we found this week came from jeremy ross who is uh je bus or jeebus 911 uh, great twitter handle my friend um guys I barely just learned how to send Bitcoin. I'm not ready for SOG WIP or whatever it's called. <laughs> oh, yeah, these, these guys are so sarcastic. Uh, <laughs> That's what I love about love that. Twitter. <laughs> God bless SOG WIP. I think we have to call it SOG WIP from here on in. Like, that's just brilliant. And of course, Coinbase have announced their SegWit support, leading to, I guess, imagine like a whole bunch of confusion uh, from the uh, SOG WIP armies right there. All right, don't forget, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered or tweets we've missed um, by getting in touch at B-Chain Insider to share your thoughts, or you can uh, get in touch with me directly at SYTaylor, or you can give GSAS himself and his rhododendron some stick by uh, getting in touch at Colin G. Platt. Uh, otherwise, drop us an email, podcasts at 11fs.com. Uh, we wanted to let you know that Colin and I took over episode nine of our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, for a one-off um, blockchain and insurance mashup. So if you're into insurance, check out Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast client, uh, or just search InsureTech Insider. That's Insure without the E, InsureTech Insider. All right, next up, I spoke to Marcus Treacher, who is SVP of Customer Success at Ripple, uh, to address some confusion over XLP. Let's hear from him now. We are here, and I have the good fortune of being joined by the SVP of Customer Success from Ripple, the one and only Marcus Treacher. How are you, sir? Good to be here. Thank you. It's a cold day in London, but uh, you made it here in one piece. Yes, uh, through a snowstorm, but always good to meet you again, Simon. It is always a pleasure. I think we had a lot of fun at the last Eurofinance conference um, quite recently. Um, all right, so um, Ripple's put out a couple of strategy pieces recently that I thought was pretty interesting. One delved into XRP and one was the broader Ripple strategy. Mm. Let's start with the broader Ripple strategy because this is a growing organization, what must be three, 400 people, maybe more now, kind of offices in, in every continent. What's, where's Ripple at in its evolution, do we think? Ripple is up to about 200 people now at Ripple, uh, but we are a global organization. We're opening offices around the world. And our strategy is, as it's always been from the, uh, the outset, which is to create what we call the Internet of Value. And that's about establishing a network of um, payment services worldwide, working with our banks and with our customers, whereby value, money can move in the way that information moves over the internet today. So it's about creating that protocol. I think uh, I often uh, view what Ripple's doing as being kind of almost the more digital, less uh, less analog version of, of what was happening previously. So in the Swift world, it was like we were sending emails uh, from one person to a second person to a third to a fourth, whereas now they're all on the same network. It's about bringing people onto this real-time kind of global network. And so um, there's a specific blog post around X and its role going forward. Um, do you have more detail on, on that specifically as well? Yes, XRP is, as you know, a digital asset which um, was designed specifically for very, very high volume, very, very fast transacting. By high volume, we mean, yeah, there's there's lots of transactions going through immediately, so we need the speed. We can't wait overnight or for three exactly, weeks for the thing. Exactly, exactly. And actually, like, unlike many of uh, the other assets out there in the world today, 
XRP is designed specifically for the use case of cross-border payments. When, and we think going forward in the future, that will be increasingly much, much higher volume than today, tiny amounts, and people demanding transactions flowing very, very quickly. So this is in contrast to in the SWIFT world, where in a best case, we're looking at really overnight in, in major currency flows and uh, or major currency pairs. This is giving us kind of lower values as well, because actually, if I'm going to do a SWIFT payment, and I'm going to pay the $30, $40 for that. I probably need to be sending a certain amount to make that worth my while. Yes, yeah, a very good point. Your point earlier um, around we being the digital um, equivalent of uh, the analog Swift messaging. It's a very good way of thinking about what we're doing and moving into a much more interconnected, immediate kind of internet mode of moving value. Now, interestingly, back to the the XRP point, XRP is a digital asset created for the purposes of exchanging value very, very quickly. Within the Ripple world, in our vision, we use it for liquidity. So with a payment challenge, there are two things really, two things to get through. One is to move value exchange value very very quickly and often with very tiny amounts very high volume and that's really the nature of the beast for payments cross-border we think in the 21st century the other challenge is making sure the money is where it needs to be at the time a payment happens and today we know that the world ties up around 23 trillion dollars worth of um, value all over the world in accounts waiting for payments to move through those accounts so if we can resolve that problem by applying XRP and applying an asset like XRP, it creates a very powerful win-win when you combine it to the immediate payment flow. And is that because that asset exists on that ledger that everybody can see, so everybody knows where their money is and that can move quickly? So that value is is known, it can be seen, but once it's settled, it's settled. So it's the digital version almost of cash it can move around in that sense versus the Nostra Vostro um, accounting, as it were, like we the double buck entry that we used to have to deal with. So how does somebody benefit from that? Because I I hear a lot of financial institutions talk about, well, the regulators don't really like digital assets, or there's a lot of concern and worry about the legitimacy of a thing that's not being issued by a central bank. I mean, where does that that fit in the um, kind of the long-term story? Because you don't have to use XRP, do you, to use Ripple? That's right. So again, Ripple is applied to the payment um, problem in two levels. One is the immediate transaction. Um, and the product we've developed for that we call XCurrent. And that's all about using the interconnection protocol we've developed to exchange value quickly. That action doesn't need a digital asset. The second uh, problem space is handling liquidity. And that's where, even though there are very good models we're working with today with the banks in the traditional world, we believe very strongly that as the marketplace develops into a much more interconnected world, there's an absolute powerful position for effective assets to be used in this way. And the the key thing here is that you work with the regulators, with the establishment, when you are bringing something new into, um, into market. So we work really closely with the world's leading regulators. The Bank of England ran a proof of concept, um, trialed Ripple um, last year, for example. And um, most of our corporate customers and global customers are banks and many of the largest banks in the world. We did that on purpose because you have to work from the inside mm-hmm. 
to evolve an industry, you can't work from the outside. You can't be a threat to it and you have to engage with those regulators. But it seems to me like the first thing people have understood is I can make payments better. And the second thing is now they're coming around to this asset. But it's definitely not, you know, the, there's a journey there, right? It's not everybody's wanting the same thing immediately. That's correct. And that, I think, really is one of our big successes. We've been able to um, solve the, the bigger problem in pieces. So a number of our customers are moving value very effectively, even though behind the Ripple transaction is classic fiat currency, whether it's krona to dollar, Japanese yen to Thai baht, moving back and forth. Um, there are companies which are also starting to um, um, pilot with us and work with us on the liquidity side. And you know, if we had bundled the whole thing together as a take or leave it from day one, you'd move much more slowly. This way, we can cater for banks and payment providers that have specific needs, and we can fine tune our technology. We evolve very, very rapidly and very quickly, and that's how we evolve into a very comprehensive proposition. So let's um, split this up even further as well, because there's the products Ripple offers to corporates and to uh, financial institutions. There's the Ripple network itself, and then there's kind of XRP, the asset, which can be traded um, at, at trading venues like exchanges and to get in and out of, of, of that. So the three of those, uh, Ripple, the company that sells products, could potentially no longer exist, but the ledger itself and the asset could continue to exist. Have I understood that right? That is correct. So Ripple is aiming to benefit primarily through its uh, workings with corporates and uh, kind of financial institutions solving their problems, I think, is, is the main aim of the company. But then can you see how people might become confused if it was the holder of a lot of XRP as well in, into that network? So I, I know it has a plan for how it's going to manage and release that. Could you give me some thoughts as, A, if I understood that, and B, kind of if, if a financial institution was concerned about that, how would you allay those fears? It's a very, very good assessment of, um, of, of Ripple's strategy and how, we, how we're constructed. So we are an uh, innovation company focused on cross-border yeah. and improving cross-border. Um, we believe the assets that we have created, um, XRP, is extremely well uh, fine-tuned for that liquidity piece. Mm -hmm. But we use it as um, you know, a commodity that's out there in the marketplace, which we feel is very, very effective uh, to bring that liquidity element to the cross-border payment picture and the way you've broken up the the proposition said i think is is spot on so it's the it's the bank to bank transaction flow which we call xcurrent mm -hmm. it's the extension of that to the the corporate world which we call xvia mm -hmm. and it's the connection to that network into the um, liquidity world via xrp mm -hmm. which we call xrapid now ripple um, does own a large amount of XRP, and um, we have locked up the XRP we hold in a series of escrow accounts, which is important because we don't want to use have our large holding to be seen as a potential threat or issue mm -hmm. um, in terms of the value of the currency. So that's locked and controlled, and um, and we also, you know, focus our work again on the on the the end to end payment flow and not so much the um, you know, the marketing of the currency. Absolutely. I, I do think that um, there's a general perception and possibly misconception at the G20 level uh, and amongst policymakers that the intent of these assets was to displace central banks and fiat currencies. 
Would you say that Ripple has a different view on, on the long-term potential for crypto assets? We do, yes. We've always worked from within the banking world. I think that's where we are rare if not unique in this whole um, you know, kind of crypto digital space. So we believe firmly that change has to come from from you know, from within, working with the existing incumbents, working with you know, members of the existing world. We do believe, though, that as the Ripple technology uh, takes hold, a number of smaller banks and regional banks would benefit much, much more mm-hmm. from the ability to pay directly and therefore, we should create a much more open, multi-connected world. And that's good also for the underbanked, the underserved in the world today. And really, if you combine that with the ability to move um, very small amounts of money, very high volumes, you then start to get a feel for the degree to which we could unlock the world's payment systems for a much bigger community. Well, because I think it's fair to say, uh, Marcus, that the reality of how uh, payments work at the regional level today is if I'm in South Korea and I've got Korean won, and if I'm uh, dealing with my counterparty in Japan who's got yen, I may have to go via uh, Citibank or JP Morgan in the US to actually complete that transaction because the US dollar is potentially the the kind of the the major cryptocurrency, uh, not cryptocurrency, the major fiat currency, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's crypto on the brain um, that, that's used as, as kind of the bridge there um, whereas XRP may, may get around that but actually that doesn't does that make XRP potentially a threat to the US dollar or does it just mean that those regional banks have a way to connect with each other in a simpler way like can you see why people might have differing perspectives on it yeah I think um, you know a rising tide benefits every boat in the, in the marina and um, I can see that with um, by making it easier for individuals, people, startup companies, etc., to pay each other in a much more business-friendly, convenient way, inclusively, that generates much more volume, much more traffic, much more activity, which therefore benefits a whole range of assets, whether they be fiat currencies, <clears throat> whether they be other forms of holding, or the cryptocurrency we created, um, XRP. So I don't see XRP being a threat to existing fiat currencies. Um, I see it being an unlocker of payment services, which today are actually quite painful to provide and so where do you think we're at in the journey of understanding and adoption of the various ripple products because i think some have been more adopted than others and but uh, as you say i think xvir is quite new um and and i guess that's part of the why these um blog posts were released to just kind of update people and and share with that journey yes we we, we've definitely led with the bank-to-bank transaction again to the point earlier that um we're working with the banks. We want to solve that problem first. Um, for example, SEB released a press article last week uh, where it talked about in- decreasing the time taken to move money from Sweden to the US from several hours to two seconds using Ripple, which is a, uh, a great uh, proving point uh, in the market today. So we've led with the bank to bank and we've been very successful in doing so. We've created our own global scheme which we call RippleNet with um, bank governance and control and rule books. And that kind of feels very, very good. Um, we're following that very quickly with the extension to the corporate world. And again, bringing the ultimate users and beneficiaries of the banking flow into that direct connection. And at the same time, we're piloting with five organizations now, including Western Union, MoneyGram, on the third component, which is XRapid. And that connects into the XRP 
asset so it, it's definitely the sort of three horizons almost you've got the the sort of laying the groundwork then the corporates then actually the liquidity piece so talk to me from a corporate's perspective if i'm uh, a big company let's say i'm pepsico or i'm royal dutch shell or what what problems do i have um as as the corporate treasurer there uh, with liquidity for instance yeah a couple of things so um first off the um the corporate treasurer's ultimate role is to know where the funds are and ensure those funds are appropriate at the right level to enable the organization to um, 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 do its work but also keep it very efficient and that requires a great deal of back and forth information out transactions in and these organizations sometimes have many many banks around the world so you create a very difficult um, connection problem uh, for corporations and, and their banks. Now, SWIFT kind of half addressed that with its SWIFT for corporate proposition. Yeah. But that's slow, it's clunky, and to your point earlier, you have the delays built into that service. Yes, so Ripple is creating that, um, that connection between corporates and banks, which moves immediate very, very quickly. And also critically, because the banks can then take that transaction and forward them onto the banking network, with software releasing later on in, in the third quarter, it means you can send a transaction from a corporate treasury department or even from the buyer in a dock working for, a, um, let's say, a trading company. That transaction can flow into the banking world, cross-border, into clearing as one connected transaction in the same way that internet information yeah. can move from my phone to your phone when I'm sending you a WhatsApp. So one of the macro themes I talk about a lot on uh, all of our podcasts and with clients of 11FS is we digitized paper processes and we keep throwing money at digitizing paper processes, whereas actually now we're moving into a world of truly digital end-to-end -end processes. So it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, way of thinking about it. Uh, so talk to me, um, let's geek out for a little bit as, uh, as payments nerds on like the SAPs, the Oracles, all of these ERPs, the, the software that the treasurer uses. What's your strategy for integrating in there? Is that kind of like you've got connectors, you have relationships with those organizations? What, what does that look like, the, the corporate treasurer's journey and their existing software stack? Yes. I mean, to um, be effective with a corporate treasurer, you have to really connect into the software that they use, whether it's a Kariba, whether it's a SunGuard, um, SAP, Oracle, etc. So the Xvia connection uh, software is API driven. So the idea is that we can embed this technology within uh, tried and tested ERP, uh, as, in, uh, as in like the SAPs of this world, or treasury workstations, or any um, um, app that's developed by um, a software provider, um, let's say a PSD2 benefiting software provider or a bank, to serve that, that the corporate treasurer. And that means that the 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 day-to-day -day activity that they, they run through, the connections back and forth with the banking system, etc., that can all be driven through this embedded API connection very smoothly, very effectively. And so um, the integrations with those uh, uh, kind of systems in corporate treasury can often be quite interesting, but the simpler you make it, hopefully the better from, from that. I think so. And also the, the, with that thinking in mind, we developed Xavier from the outset to be hosted, which is another ah, so very important point. to sit on the client side. Very important point, or even on, on the cloud. So the idea is yeah. if you have Kariba in the cloud or... SAP's FSN network, for example, mm -hmm. I'm just picking a few names out. Um, the direction of travel for 
software provided to corporates large and small is to put them on the cloud. But it'd be your own instance in a private cloud somewhere. That's correct. That's correct. So for the customer's experience, they'll be accessing the cloud software supporting their treasury or let's say their finance function. Embedded in that cloud proposition is Ripple's delivery capability. Makes a lot of sense. Marcus, um, what's happening next for Ripple and XRP? What should we look forward to? Look forward to uh, much more growth. Uh, you should see announcements for more connections, more corridors coming into play as we connect up more parts of the world. And also look for more pilots and also companies moving into production mode for the XRP flow, the XRapid flow. Excellent. So is moving much more quickly. XRapid's moving hoped, XRapidly. Which is fantastic, yeah. So um, so we do expect to see some, some really good messages coming out about really all three of the areas that we are pushing. And ultimately, we should see these coming together. And we want to be um, briefing you probably the next time we get together yeah. on banks who are moving funds through a, an XRapid X connection bank to bank with a corporate at both ends. 2018 is the year of enterprise production from the sounds of it. Marcus Treacher, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you. Alrighty, a big thank you to Marcus Treacher, Frank Muller, and of course, my co-host, Colin G. Platt, um, and the amazing production team here at 11FS, Laura Watkins, our producer, Michael Bailey, our editor, and assistant producer, Petrit, who's back back in the room i feel i just feel great about this picture i'm feeling pretty good back in the saddle again he's he's back he's he's finding tweets of the week he's formatting show notes he's doing all sorts fucking guests you name it the man's a superstar already um 11fs the company that brings you this podcast we're a challenger consultancy and agency who help you do stuff so get in touch um you can hit up our website 11fs.com to find out more or hello at 11fs.com thank you for listening if you like what you heard please please subscribe to our podcast leave us a review on itunes those reviews help us so so much spread the word tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to we'll have more blockchain insider next week but for now goodbye